Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Boy, you know, Corey, you're only as good as your people. And when I need to hire new people, and I found you this way, actually, Corey, a long time ago, was on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Job uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. And think about it. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers. So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and background for sure, but it also includes interests, activities, and passions. Customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires. So post a job today at linkedin.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash Taffer. Terms and conditions apply. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Hello, I'm John Taffer. This is my No Excuses podcast, and this is episode 46, which is pretty incredible, Corey. Yeah, We're approaching a year. Yeah. Wow, I never thought it would quit. go so quickly. Well, this was a big week for me, buddy. Big time. I just came back from a couple of weeks in Kansas City, which was great. Uh, heading to Denver uh, this week to make a little bit of television, but I made a huge announcement this week, and those of you who watch social media probably know already what it is, but we announced my new television show. And uh, we shot six episodes. I am extremely excited about it. It's called Marriage Rescue. And here's the premise of the show. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a professional counselor. But I'm damn good at this. And here's the story of Marriage Rescue. After 175 or so bar rescues, the network said to me, you know, John, the best part of bar rescue is when you help the relationships of married people, couples, partners, family members. We'd like to develop a show based on relationships for you because of that skill. Well, I went back. I watched a bunch of Bar Rescue episodes, uh, particularly some that had husbands and wives and families. Moon Runners comes to mind. Uh, 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 Blue Moon comes to mind, a few others. A Blue Fog, rather, comes to mind, a few others. And uh, Son of a Gun, we went and we shot six episodes. We took 12 couples to a five-star resort in Puerto Rico. I had four days with each. So I had to assess their situation, had to confront their issues, had them each confront their own issues, put them on a course of reconciliation or mending, if you will. And then at the end of the show, you'll see what happens, whether they stay together or they don't. But I'm really proud of it. It's a great show. It's a beautiful show. And Marriage Rescue premieres uh, June 2nd, of course, on the Paramount Network. And I'm pretty excited because Bar Rescue doesn't end. So I just agreed to do 12 more bar rescues, so I start three more this week. So we finish three more. Take a little break for a few weeks. I think I need that, Corey. Yeah, I can say that. And then we come back in the middle of July, and we make 12 more bar rescues, and then we go into a few more marriage rescues. And I'm pretty excited. So Sunday night, June 2nd, mark your calendars, everybody, the premiere of Marriage Rescue, and it's going to premiere right after a new bar rescue. So it's a big night for me, a very flattering night for me to think that I could have two different television shows on at the same time, uh, uh, one before the other, is, is unbelievably flattering and exciting to me. And I thank you all for making that happen. So Marriage Rescue is a big responsibility. You know, uh, bars I know inside out. I have no problem taking on a responsibility to guide someone in their bar business or their restaurant business or their hospitality business. And I'm also in trade show businesses and some other businesses as well. But generally speaking, I am extremely comfortable claiming to be an expert at certain things and taking people's money to have them help it based on that expertise. I've never had an issue with that. But when Marriage Rescue came up, I said, hold on a minute here. This is not a business. This is people's lives. Uh, uh, not that a business isn't, but this is directly their lives. 
said, I better be good at this. So I read every book I could find, Corey. Watch every training video. Watch all sorts of examination videos of, of patients under therapy. I read, watched, and learned everything I possibly could so that I could walk into this with at least knowledge similar to a therapist with an understanding of the process that therapists go to, how they identify the issues, how they challenge those issues, how they correct the issues, correct, correct the behavior, and how they put couples back together again. I had to learn that inside out. And you know what's interesting? Therapists, and I respect them all, of course, they do very important work, but therapists always seem to have a certain line that they won't cross because they need to have you come back next week. You know what I mean, Corey? Right, yeah. I think that's the most interesting aspect of the show. It is, because every therapist will only say so much to you. They need you to come back next week. If they offend you too much, if they're too direct, too insulting, call you out too much, there's a great chance that you won't come back next week. Right. So a therapist is very focused on process and working this through over weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm not saying there's a financial motive. I'm sure with some there are, some there aren't. But the fact of the matter is it's a process. Well, I didn't have a process, buddy. I had four days. So there is no coming back next week, which means I can say whatever the hell I want to say. I can be as direct as I want to be. I can be as confrontational as I want to be. And I can challenge them directly, eye to eye to their face. And I can do that in ways that no therapist ever could, Corey. And that is the success of the show. I think that people were shocked by it, the couples that came. A couple of them had been to marriage therapists. One couple will tell you on camera that they went to marriage therapy and the therapist told them to get divorced. (laughs) So I think that I actually have an advantage by not being a therapist, by having the knowledge not having to have them come back week after week and having a desire to be direct, confrontational, and incredibly honest with them. So we'll see what you all think on June 2nd when Marriage Rescue Air is a pretty exciting time for me. By the way, did you know, Corey, that today is National Beverage Day? I did not. It is. It's National Beverage Day. And I think I've mentioned this before, but it's official now. On June 24th, Taffer Mixologist which is seven flavors of what I believe are the best cocktail mixers in America, go on sale at over 4,400 Walmarts across the country. Wow. And I am really excited. I've been working on this uh, uh, for two, three years, perfecting recipes, working with a good friend of mine, a mixologist, Brian Van Flandern. And Brian and I worked and worked and worked and worked, and I believe that we have the best mixers on the market. I'm pretty excited for all of you to try them. Those come out on June 24th at Walmarts all across the country. And there's another product that we're working on that we'll make an announcement soon called Taffer's Craft Carbonated Cocktails, mm. which are ready-to-drink 5% alcohol cocktails, which, are, which we're just finishing up, and we'll make an announcement on those pretty soon. But I thought I had to say that since it's National Beverage Day. Also for National Beverage Day, I thought I would bring one of my favorite nightlife managers in the world in. And so today I got a great interview with Ron Nicoli. Ron Nicoli is director of nightlife at the Palms, used to be director of nightlife at Wynn Las Vegas. He is, in my opinion, one of the greatest nightlife executives and marketers in the country. So for National Beverage Day, I thought we'd have Ron Nicoli today here for an interview, which is exciting to me. And, you know, if you're going to watch Marriage Rescue, you really don't have to pay for it on your cable channel. Fact of the matter is, if you want to watch Marriage Rescue, you can watch it on Pluto TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand all for free. There's no credit card needed, no sign up. And Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Pluto TV is free on all of your favorite devices. Download Pluto TV today. So the Friday before Mother's Day every year is National Military Spouse Appreciation Day. Also, the Friday before Mother's Day every year is National Provider Appreciation Day. Oh, okay. So I guess that means uh, uh, care providers. But, you know, as as, uh, Mother's Day approaches, I can't help but think of my mom, who I lost now, I think it was six years ago. You know, my mom was in an assisted living home. We hadn't uh, spoken in a while and really bothered me and, of course, I wrote a lot about it in my first book, Raise the Bar. But, you know, my mom and I had an unbelievable relationship in the last 20 years or so of her life. And, 
she actually got to come to a taping of Bar Rescue. And it was in a later year. She was about 85, Corey. She wasn't doing so well. And she was in an assisted living home in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oh, okay. And I shot the Tiki Bar episode of Bar Rescue. And my mother got to come. You know, Nicole went and picked her up in a van because she was in a wheelchair. And they got her to set, and she got to sit in the MCR, and she got to watch her son make a television show, which never in a million years had she or I thought I would ever do. Right. And she got to see it and participate and meet the crew, and everybody was so great to her. And there's about 57 people on my crew. And she spent the whole day and had dinner with us all in, in, uh, uh, with craft services. And then she went home that night. And just a few months before my mom passed, Bar Rescue premiered. And it was one of the greatest moments of my life to, to have my television show, my own television show, have my mother see such a thing. When that was never a dream in my life, I had never thought of ever being on television. That was an amazing night for me. And I pictured that night when the show premiered, my mother laying in her bed in the assisted living facility with her bed propped up like she always had it, 86 years old or so, and watching for her son's television show to come on. Well, it comes on, Corey. She watches the show. And the first night of Bar Rescue, of course, the show ends. And who do you think the first person I call when the show ends is? My mother, of course, oh, yeah. right? So I pick up the phone. I call my mom. The show ended literally 60 seconds before. I call up my mother. I say, Mom, what did you think? And her answer was, John, your bald spot was terrible. But Nicole <laughs> looked beautiful. And that was my mother's comment about Bar Rescue, where she got to watch a lot of episodes. And when she passed at 87 years old, there was one episode. Of course, I can't remember which episode it was. I think it was a Burbank episode. And on the end of the episode, you'll actually see a memoriam to Yvette Taffer. So I got to dedicate an episode to my mom. Oh, that's you cool. know, I was looking at talking about fun Mother's Day gifts that we could give away. You know, or talk about fun things to give to your mom and stuff. But, you know, as one who's worked with so many moms in Bar Rescue, and it has been involved uh, through charity work that I do with moms and, and disadvantaged children and disadvantaged moms. And, you know, I feel that I've had the opportunity to know thousands of mothers and, and you know, learn about hundreds of mother-children relationships. And I think the greatest gift that you can give to your mom really is just a phone call, a hug, something that's intimate, something personal. Yeah. Not a scarf. Not something that comes in a box from Amazon. That phone call, that personal FaceTime, that something that really makes her feel special. And I think that if we all sit back and think, what can we do this weekend for our mothers to just make them feel really special? And that's not procedural. That's not going online and buying a gift. That's doing something personal. And I know for my mom, I'd send her berries. She loved those chocolate-covered berries. So I'd send her the berries because I know she'd give them out to all of her friends. It was fun for her. She'd tell everybody, oh, my son sent me these. My son sent me these. And it was personal to her. Every year she knew that she got those same berries so that she could give them to her friends and say, my son sent them. But those berries would have meant nothing without the phone calls and the affection and all the effort that I made around it to make certain that this one day a year she got back all the love that she had given to me. If you haven't spoken to your mom in a while, do it. If you weren't going to call on Sunday, do it. It's a great excuse to call if you haven't called in a while. I promise you, you will feel good after you do. So to all the mothers out there, I wish you all a really, really great Mother's Day. Corey, what do you want to say to your mom today? Well, I just got to say Happy Mother's Day and thank you for you know all the years of support. And I, I know that you're one of the, the biggest supporters of this podcast because you text me every day, every time you listen to it. So Happy Mother's Day. I love you. And Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, and especially my daughter, Samantha. My daughter, Samantha, is going to have her very first child on or around June 10th, which makes me a grandfather for the first time, Corey. Wow. So I want to say awesome. a really special soon-to-be Mother's Day yeah. to Samantha Taffer. And I'll be back in a minute with Ron Nicole. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Boy, every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. 
While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions like navigation and moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already knew that was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so that you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True Cash Offer, not available in all areas. Well, if you like my show, you're going to love the Charlie Kirk Show on Podcast One. Join Charlie. He's a best-selling author, Twitter personality, and founder of Turning Point USA as he celebrates his pilot episode with an exclusive interview with Donald Trump Jr. Download new episodes of The Charlie Kirk Show every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. You know, every once in a while, I get to bring a friend on my podcast. And today is National Beverage Day. So there's no better day than to bring my favorite nightlife executive, Ron Nicoli, on this podcast. But Ron, before you say anything, i got to make you blush for a minute. Ron grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Went into the health club business. Started doing parties when he was young. Went into the nightlife business. Came out to Las Vegas. We'll talk about how that happened in a minute. Ran Win Nightlife for 10 years, Ron? Yep, 10 years. Opening Excess, which was the highest volume nightclub in the world. I remember when I ran a nightclub and bar top 100, you guys won it at $88 million in sales, if I'm not mistaken, one year. Correct, we did, yeah. Number one venue in the world. Could you imagine doing $88 million a year? And when you think about how much one customer spends, $88 million is a shitload of people. A lot of people during the course of the year to get to that number. So as an executive in Win Nightlife, Ron uh, 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 mastered Las Vegas Nightlife. Brought all the best DJs in, positioned numerous venues, and became what I believe is the greatest nightlife brander I've ever met. Then you just left Win, went to Palms recently, and opened up the most aggressive nightlife project, I think, in the country, if not the world, right? Yeah, I would say. I mean, basically, you know, to look at the Palms, when I first came out here about 14, 15 years ago, the, the Palms was kind of the epicenter of entertainment. I mean, they had reality TV shows filming there. It was hip. It was very hip, very hip. I mean, the, the property itself was hip. It was, you know, the, the center bar was a location. The, the concert series would come through there. They had a lot of club opportunities there. The dining was vibe. And all of a sudden, I take a job at Wynn. And the story was, oh, why'd you, why'd you go to Wynn? And I said, well, you know, I met a gentleman named Victor Dre who inspired me and then put me in contact with a man named Jesse Waits who inspired me even more. Uh, but the narrative was you're not going to be successful. Nobody is going that far down the strip and nobody's going to win to go to a nightclub. It's too nice. So, so everything was going on on the southern part of the strip. Now you're moving up north. Mm -hmm. There's no hotels right around there. You don't have the same foot traffic. So that was your first challenge in that life. But I want to go back. Okay. Let's go back a few years. When you were in high school in Youngstown, Ohio, and I shot a bar rescue there, I think we talked about it, and Youngstown really touched me when I was there. You know, there's economic plight there and the factories of coke them. Were you disciplined when you were young? Oh, very. very. Always? Yeah. Oh, you know, there, well, here's the thing. Growing up, you know, my, uh, my parents were very active in my life and, and very active with really just my growth and development. And, you know, I think that coming into that family was very important. Discipline was very important, uh, and there was there was an old school values that came into play. You know, it was, it was Sunday dinner at grandma's house. It was mm -hmm. it was a real uh, Italian family. I was going to say that right. Um, you know, so the thing was is it was weird though because as I got older, there was my, my parents really wanted me to be an adult, and I remember that I went from having a very very early curfew, 10 p.m. on weekends, mm -hmm. to when I turned 16 and got a job. My dad said, "Well, if you're going to work like a man, I'm going to treat you like a man." Mm. And now, now the kind of per provisions around me changed, and there was this real adult lifestyle that came into play with the responsibility of being an adult. So you became responsible for yourself at a young age, even though you had the support of your family around you. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And it, it was, and it, I got to be honest, and I think it's because of that that I, I've been able to maintain a certain, uh, my high level of professionalism because there was all these 
variables around me that could have led me down a negative path. But my parents gave me the option of making the right decisions. And they, they supported me when the decision went in the direction that they knew was right. And guess what? They disciplined me when they understood that maybe I was veering towards a path that probably wasn't in the right space. Yeah, you know, you and I are very similar because both of us don't drink. Correct. We're around nightlife. So to, for us, alcohol is for selling. 100%. 100%. So we're both very disciplined. We never succumbed to the sex, drugs, rock and roll of the nightclub industry. It was always around us. 100%, yeah. You and I always seem to put the business first. I've always had a huge respect for you because of that, Ron. When you think about the fact that you live in and work in Las Vegas nightlife, the women that are around you, the opportunity to do recreational activities beyond the common man's belief and dreams – but yet guys like you and I will say no to that every day because you put your career first. Were you that way when you were young? Yeah, you know, I think that there was always uh, – there was kind of a, a I guess, a, a loyalty and direction. You know, it was – all these elements were around me, these variables around me. And it's funny because it's a question that I actually just – it was funny. Me and my wife had this conversation just a few nights ago. You know, I've been married 10 years, two kids. Um, Beautiful kids, I might add. You know, me and, me and my wife deeply in love. And, and, you know, the question comes up a lot. You know, you're opening up a new club in Las Vegas, a lot of attention around you. And with that, obviously, there's a, I guess, it, to the normal man, there's a lot of temptation. But, like, I don't view the temptation. You know, to me, it's, it's white noise at this point. You know, my, my focus mm-hmm. is on customer experience. My focus, you know what? Those, those, those very pretty girls that are in the club, I want to make sure they're having a good time, but I'm not trying to have a good time with them. Exactly, yeah. You know, Boy, and, you and I are so alike like this. Okay, so you're in Youngstown. You went into the bar nightclub business, and you, and you like doing parties, right? You had lists and friends, and you were developing parties. That is that how you really went into nightlife? So it was my, it was my junior year in high school. And me and my, my good friend of my name, Dom Ragazine, his dad had a, a plot of land. Now, in Ohio, you understand, we got, we got a lot of things going on. We got a lot of farms. Mm-hmm. A lot of farms, a lot of land. You know, the big event each year is the Canfield Fair. <laughs> so that, that's, that, that tells you a little bit about where I'm from, from Youngstown. And he had a plot of land, and me and my boy Dom would throw parties there. Mm. And this, this was ways where we would throw about four big parties a year, and that's, that's what we lived off of. You know, that was our, that was our income to, to not have the traditional nine to five. So we'd so, Sort of a rave, if you will, in its day. Oh, yeah. 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 And you know what the thing was is back then it was very, very simple because, you know, I remember we would have a DJ and he'd have to go find his own equipment. And, <laughs> you know, it, we, we were organizing these events at a very young age and – we were making enough money at that age to, to basically self-sustain for the period of three months until we threw the next one. Wow. And keep in mind, the hardest part coming from a, a small town is breaking that small town mentality. Because keep in mind, I, I went to college, graduated advertising, marketing degree from Youngstown mm-hmm. State, and I come out to Vegas. And coming out to Vegas, I always loved nightlife. I always loved the hospitality industry. But when you're from Youngstown – not necessarily a negative, but there, there is a stigma that you know, you're 23, 24. You get married, you have kids, and you mm-hmm. don't go to clubs anymore. Right. That's, that's, you, do that, you do that to self-sustain through your educational period, but then you settle down. So yep. come out here the first couple of years, and even though it was my passion, I, I denied my passion because my belief was I can't do that. I can't do nightlife. That, that, that was something I did to get where I'm at. Mm. Now that I'm at here, it's I've got to find the career. So that, that responsibility you had when you were young settled in. Yes. So to you, there I say, you never, you never shot where you ate. Correct. Yeah, neither Correct. did I. So, so, okay, you're in Youngstown, so now you're doing these parties. What was your first job in a bar? So I was, I think it was maybe like a junior in college. And there was, uh, there was this, this box, so to speak, and it was, it was called 1743. That was the address. And it's sitting in this plaza in Austintown, Ohio, where I'm from. And it had been re-ragged as probably about 10 different, 10 different clubs mm-hmm. for that space. And, and I use the club term loosely, but it was a club. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, probably about 10 different spaces over 15, 20 years. Yeah. And they're opening up a place and a friend of mine gets involved in it and they call it The Mill. And The Mill was the name because it had close connections to the mills that used to be open in Youngstown, Ohio. Okay. And you know, my grandfather worked at The Mill and then he was a barber. On the side. So, you know, he'd work at the mill during the day. He'd go cut his friend's hair in a bar at night. And yeah. that's, what my, that's what grandpa did. And there was such a close connection to the community. Um, so he asked me, he goes, hey, do you want to come in and be a bartender? Now, I go in and I'm going to college to have a marketing degree. So I go and take the bartender job as a point at, of entry. At that point, what did you want to do with your life? Did you know? You're uh, in college? I'm in college. Taking marketing? Uh, 
taking marketing, and I think I'm working at that point about four jobs. I'm, I'm like doing, I'm doing, I'm doing the young. I call it the Youngstown hustle because I'm literally running a tanning salon, working at a gym. I'm like doing like marketing concepts for like like a car dealership, like trying to help them with yeah. like the circulars yep. and flyers yep. and stuff. And then I take this job as a bartender. Wow! So you were always a bulldog. You always worked. Oh yeah. If I were to ask you then to close your eyes and picture what you would be doing five years later, what would you have come up with? Uh, I would. I would have never said Vegas. You know, here's the thing. I, I, when I tell the story, Vegas was an accident, and it really was. You know, Vegas wasn't supposed to be what I was going to do. I, I, had, I had what I called is I called it waving the white flag. Looking back, I call it that. Got engaged because I felt that's what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. 20, 23, 22, 23, that was the culture. Yeah. It's time to get married. Got engaged to a, a girl and great girl, but we just we, we really weren't on the same page with life. But we both fell into that category. Get engaged, and about two weeks before my wedding, we called the wedding off. Wow, courageous, actually. And basically, small town. You can't you can't heal in a small town because you go to the grocery store, you see each other, you see friends, you get questions. Mm-hmm. So my dad actually was the one who we had. I had a mutual friend who came out to Vegas. And my dad said, why don't, you, why don't you go out there for six months? Because you're done with, college, you're done with school. You're, you're in between careers right now. You're trying to figure yourself out. Go take six months. And my dad put a little bit of money in my pocket, uh, just enough to get going. And I ended up out here for what was supposed to be six months. Chasing what was going to be your future. Correct. Yeah. You didn't even know it at the time. I, I really had no clue. Um, so you come to Vegas. Yep. You, you check into a hotel, I guess. Um, well, here the funny you thing. Stayed with a friend. Stayed with a friend. Okay. Stayed with a friend. The, the, you know, there's, there's, like you're saying, there's kind of, there's two points of entry into Vegas. You're either you're at a hotel extended stay, or you're with a friend, <laughs> yes. and you're you're trying to find that that quick path to success, so to speak. And I remember coming out here, and I still had to fight the Ohio mentality, because now all of a sudden I'm going to put my degree to work. Yeah. And one of my first interviews, I go and I interview, and when I say this is funny because I tell my staff this story, right? And some of them don't even know what I'm talking about. So it was Sprint Yellow Pages. And I go in for what's listed as a marketing coordinator job. Yep. And it wasn't. It was a sales so job. Selling Yellow, page, yellow yeah. Pages, yep. And I go in and I'm sitting there and, again, it, it was a pretty vigorous interview. So – and I didn't know – I didn't really understand the pay with the structure. And we get, we get through the end and we get to an offer. And they, they make an offer and I look at the pay and it was scary. I, admit, I made more in Youngstown. Ooh. Doing doing what I thought were odd jobs. Wow. And then I remember just sitting there thinking, all right, well, what am I going to do? And now keep in mind, at, at this point, we're starting to see the clubs start forming in Las Vegas. You're starting to see the... the was Wynn open yet, the property? No. So Steve was at the Bellagio at that point in time. S- Steve was at Bellagio. Um, and I think like it was at that point where you know, like Mandalay Bay had a great club program. Right. Mandalay Mondays, you had Rum Jungle, you had... Uh, Rum Jungle was a great concept with the fire and, and the water. Amazing concept. Yeah. Amazing concept. Because I, mean, I look at it, Rum Jungle, keep in mind, you know, coming from Ohio, you come out here and you go to some of these clubs and I'm walking to Rum Jungle and it's playing off every sense. Oh, it was incredible. Also, a, a, a Red Square was there. Square. Mandalay was hot back in those days, it was, actually. That, that was the hot spot. Yeah. Like, yeah, keep in mind, like, the, that's when, and not that they don't so much now, but industry nights meant something then. Like Monday night, everybody was a man of it. And so I go there, and then obviously I always wanted to go to Studio 54. So Tuesday night, go over to Studio 54. And keep in mind, like, these things are mind-blowing to me. Yep, at MGM. At MGM, then you got Taboo over there. So again, like, everyone had their kind of niche. Everyone had their night. And you would go out, and the the mass of people that would go out back then, you know. And, And again, it was... There was such a, a unified community and nightlife that you knew where everyone was going on each night. And all this was really blowing my mind. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I, I really want to really do that. You know? But again, I'm still, I'm still fighting that small town mentality. Right. So, so why would you want to be in a bar when you're over 32, 33 years old even to work there? Right. Uh-huh. So, so, so what did you do? What was your first bar job here? So the first job I take now – so I, I ended up getting to a point where – my, my love, there was two loves I had. I loved nightlife and hospitality. And I was always into health and wellness. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up my own personal training business. Because I'm, I'm, at, I'm at that point where i got to make a decision. Money, money is running out. Mm-hmm. I've got to figure out what's my niche in Las Vegas. And again, I'm still fighting the, 
the the economics of of really like do I want to be this club guy? And keep in mind, like part of the pressures coming out here was you got two sets of friends back home. You got the friends that ask you questions because they want to see you succeed and they're supportive, and then you got the friends that maybe because they they didn't want to take that leap. There's a little part of them want you to fail. Boy, do I know that being on television, right? Times yeah. ten. I can imagine. I can yep. only imagine. Yep. Okay. Um, so, which you know, I I end up opening up my own fitness business, little personal training business. Yep. Get to a point of really sustaining. So at this point, I'm 20, 24 years old. I've got a good client base, and I wake up one day and I realize, look, I, it, to most people, to me, maybe I had everything that I wanted, but I was very lonely. Mm. I'm 24, getting up at six in the morning. It's my, a lonely business with one person at a time, right? And when, then the other thing is too is you you start realizing that these are clients; they're not your friends. It's be friendly but not friend. Right. And I'm like, man, like, I don't really know anybody. I'm out here alone on, on an island, and the only people I interact with are clients. And, you know, more and more, the longer I was away from Ohio, the less and less I spoke to friends from Ohio. So all of a sudden, I... Developing a bit of fear, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind, like, the, I understood at a certain point that there was nothing to go home to. So that I had to put everything into what Las Vegas could be for me. What can I shape this to be? What can I make Las Vegas? Um, and then I meet Victor Dre. Now, Victor Dre is a nightclub legend here in Las Vegas who uh, uh, opened the legendary Dre's in a Barnaby, right? Mm-hmm. In, in the Bar- Barbary Coast Barbara Hotel. Coast, yeah. And created one of the most famous after-hours events of all time. And there was one thing about that venue that I used to love as, as a concept guy. Will love. I used to love every night about 10, 11 o'clock at night, maybe midnight, maybe one in the morning. I forget when it was. They would suddenly change the decor of the room. They'd pull stuff off tables. They'd bring candles out. Mm-hmm. And the entire place would change into an amazing uh, after-hour scene. So Victor Dre was a legend in Las Vegas, for those who don't know his name. And, mm-hmm. and he still touches many of the venues and many of the nightlife has evolved from the work that Victor Dre has done. So go ahead. So you met Victor. Uh, I was going to say, if, you, if there was some sort of nightlife evolutionary chart for Las Vegas, the, the, the line of segment off of Victor Dre is, is crazy. Yeah. The amount of people that he brought into this industry, taught this business to. So I meet Victor Dre. And Victor Dre, and keep in mind, I'm 24. I, I've got this French Moroccan gentleman coming up to me, having a conversation with me. Didn't know who he was, and puts me in touch with a guy who works for him. Now I was skeptical to even make that phone call because the interaction of meeting was so weird. I met him at the fashion show mall. So a conversation from that, I take a chance. I pick up the phone and I call a guy named Curtis. And Curtis, uh, Curtis says to me, "Yeah, Victor mentioned you would call me. I want you to ha- be a street promoter for me." And I, I'll keep my, I, I didn't know what that meant. That's one of the take one guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, all right, let me, uh, let me, let me try this. I didn't know what it was, but my thing was this. I, I, my assumption was anything that I can now interact with people. I've got my business, my business. Right. You're making connections. You're becoming a part of Las Vegas. I'm with you. So I, t- I take the job. And what the job was, was I would stand on the street and head off liars. And that's all I would do is I would stand on Las Vegas Strip and I'd hand out flyers as people walk by. And I remember it's, it's funny. It's an, interest, an interesting, funny story. So my, my partner over at Chaos is a gentleman named Ryan Craig. Mm-hmm. The first time I met Ryan Craig, I ran out of flyers and I walked back into Wynn to go to what was Labette. And Ryan Craig's at the door. And I said, hey, I need to get downstairs to get more flyers. He goes, I don't know you. I go, okay, I'm, I'm letting you know I work here. He goes, I don't know you. You don't work here. Wouldn't let me in to go downstairs to get more flyers. And I actually – I told that story when we did our force orientation with our <laughs> staff. But that's the first time I met a gentleman who now is one of my closest friends, dearest uh, friends. He, he didn't believe that I actually worked at the space. But that's Vegas. You're in your out sometimes, right? 100 percent. Yep. So now from that job, what was your next step? So I take the job and the job primarily was going to be for Dre's After Hours at that time. And during that period of time – Victor was making a move, uh, working with Mr. Wynn, to take over what was the Labette space. Yep. Now, Wynn opened in April of that year. Their conversation started, I think, about June or July. I came on with Victor around June or July. So by middle of July, all of a sudden, I go from passing out flyers for a basement after-hours club to I'm at the Wynn. And I'm walking into the Wynn. And keep in mind, it was the first time I ever walked into the Wynn. 
Uh, and it was the first time I had ever seen a hotel like that. And it's magnificent. It's amazing. Yeah. The, the, the attention, the detail in that yep. space is just – again, it's like it's, – you, you in my mind, I couldn't dream it. Great hoteliers are blown away by it when they walk in. It's, yeah. Honestly, it, it, even tra- traveling the world at this point, it's very hard to compare something yep. to win. So I walk in and that's my first experience is I walk into this building to go and meet with my bosses. And I get there and literally I, at this point I'm kind of uh, I guess starstruck just in general with the environment I'm in. Mm-hmm. And I remember I remember the first day I worked at the club. Now keep in mind my first job at the club was I was the flyer guy and then I would go to the pools and guestless girls. And I was the exit rope guy. And this used to be a position. I tell this story. Everyone's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I would say goodbye and thank you. And I would mm-hmm. open the exit rope as people left. And that was a job. And, they, and I remember people saying, really? And I'm like, yeah. And I go – and I was excited. The first night I was told – and it's funny because I, I don't wear suits a lot now. But the first time I was told you got to get a suit, it was like the most exciting thing for me. Wow, sure. You were coming up. Coming up, yeah. That, that, that made me feel like I was making that progressive step of making it. Yeah. So I'm working the exit rope, and that was my first point of entry. And then, honestly, it dawned on me one day. I'm like sitting there, and keep in mind, it's getting to a point now where the club is asking me to do more and more. And my business itself is not failing, but my attention to detail can't be on both. And I Mm -hmm. had to make a decision. I'm at that fork in the road, and I'm like, well, could this club thing be real? Could, Could my career in nightlife be real? And it came to a point one day where I said to myself, and I had that very interesting conversation with clients because now mm-hmm. I've got clients that have built yep. you know, six months, a year type of – and keep in mind, personal training I think is more than just getting someone uh, physically fit. Mentally, you're there encouraging them. Yes, Mentally, you're building up their confidence. You're part of the process. It doesn't end. Correct. Yeah. So having to cut those ties were very difficult for me. And I remember even afterwards, I would – there was a few clients that I actually kept on after I kind of disbanded the business just for about six months because they, they were at critical points of meeting goals and I wanted to see them meet their goals. But I went the nightlife route. Now, keep in mind, in the beginning of nightlife, I wasn't making any money. But I understood that it was almost taking a step back to position for a big step forward. And I did that. And in the beginning, it was frustrating. And you have those moments where not necessarily there's regret, but you know, I'm, I'm still young. I was 25 years old and I'm sitting there. You know, it's interesting. When I wrote my last book, Don't BS Yourself, Cut the Excuse of Holding You Back. You know, one of the biggest excuses I come across so often with people is, is ego. Even in Bar Rescue, right? Their ego. They won't change this freaking wall because it's, you know, their ego. And, and the fact of the matter is the people with the biggest ego have the thinnest freaking wallets. <laughs> Most yeah, of the time. 100%. Right? So when I look at you today, your stature in this town is uh, uh, above any of your peers. Your reputation is outstanding. To think that you would put your ego aside to hand out flyers in a street corner is why you're successful. There's a humility to you that makes you very special, buddy. So when I think about what did Victor Dre see that day at Fashion Show Mall in you that caused him to make that phone call and even set you up as a take one guy in a corner, he saw something in you. And then you walked into win. And Steve and Andrea are good friends of mine. Steve Wynn and Andrea are, are very dear friends of my wife, Nicole, and I. And he's one tough guy. And he saw something, too, and entrusted his brands and his venues and his new development projects and hundreds of millions of dollars of asset investments and stuff behind you from a guy who just a few years before was handing out flyers in front of his freaking hotel. That's an amazing story of humility, putting ego aside, learning. And as one who's lived in this town for seven years, I've known you probably 12, 15 years. I've known you a long time, Ron, right? A long time now, yeah. Going back to to excess days and nightclub and bar and everything. There is no one who I've seen grow in a more sophisticated way than you. And I'm not trying to make you blush, buddy, or make you feel bad. But to think that you were that guy on that corner saying, take one, take one, take one, take one. You walked in to win. Somebody saw something in you, Ron. People see that in you to this very day. You show up. You try. You take everything very seriously. It goes back to you as a kid having that responsible day. When you opened your venue in Palms, if you didn't make those people smile, it would have bummed you out beyond belief, wouldn't it have? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, 
You know, I, 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 here's the, the thing is I always reflect. It's self-reflection, right? As important as that $25,000 whale is, I know, the, I know the 21-year-old kid from Ohio that saved up all year to have two days in Vegas. Yeah. And those two days, I tell, my, I tell my team all the time, we're in the customer experience and memory business right now. Sure. How do we create a memory? That lasts. And again, if the service is where it needs to be and the experience is there – that memory is what's very important now. Yeah. It, but you're better than that. Yeah, you get your service right. Mm-hmm. You create the right environments. But you understand the magic of music and promotion and energy and interaction and flow and all the things that make that stage really come alive. And many of your peers don't get that part. They get the building. They get the service flow. They get the standards. This is to be this way. That's to be that way. To there in four minutes. But the environment sucks. Mm-hmm. Where the energy curve isn't right, where the beats per minute isn't right, or the music mix isn't right, or the interaction of the staff isn't right. You really focus on all those things, and that's what makes your environments come to life so high. So when you think of a bar guy in Toledo or who's in Kansas City or Denver, and he's not Las Vegas, and how do you tell him to go about social media from a strategic standpoint? What do you think many of them think about it that's wrong? I think one of the harder things in social media is businesses themselves don't have an identity. You know, if I, if I look at chaos, chaos itself isn't necessarily a living, breathing thing. You know, it's, it's, it's basically it's, – it's, it's a business and it's trying to form an identity. But the identity of that space is, is the, the elements around it. Mm-hmm. It's the talent. It's the personalities. It's the staff. And really all three of those a- end up – being able to tell a better story with the same content. And it's really about looking at how do I maximize the overall opportunity of content use? Because again, you know, it's, I always call it, it's check the box marketing at certain points. we got a great recap video. we got to post it. All right, so we, we post it. Mm-hmm. And then we, we run through the channels. All right, now we take this and we build an ad out of it for Facebook and we're getting those ticket sales from it and we're doing our targets the right way. And that's all great. But where I see the organic side, the side that I'm not chasing with dollars is the staff. It's how do I create personalities within my business? Now, that's a very hard thing sometimes for, I would even say, what I've noticed, even club owners themselves, they want to be the personality. They want to be the face person. I want my staff to be the face yeah, of the venue. I agree with you completely. I want my, I mean, here's the thing. If I look at, you know, the 200 cocktail waitresses that work for me, their engagement on social collectively outweighs what I do on the club side. Their impressions for a single post that takes collective one minute has more marketing impressions than that static billboard I've got in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So do you communicate with your staff or do you link to their pages automatically? So do you send a post and it goes to them automatically through an opt-in program or do they communicate separately on their own? I, I do the independent communication. What, what, I, what, I, what I saw with the staff was, one, the two, the two, the two things that I talked to staff about is, one, I understand that everyone feels that they're a brand now. I talked to some of some of the because think about it, I, have, I have girls on staff that have hundreds of thousands of followers. Oh sure, and they're you know they're have almost co careers now. They're they're yeah. a social influencer and, and they're many celebrities in their 100%. own world. Yep. And they talk about bastardizing their brand, and it's interesting. A couple uh-huh. years ago, I would have I don't want to say I would have laughed at that, but I would have I'd probably given them a second look. Now, when I go through, I check everyone's account because I want to understand how they're interacting. Because also here's the thing: to me, I have my team dissecting everyone's account because I want to understand. What are they getting engagement on? How do we curate content for them that speaks to our brand but doesn't bastardize theirs but gives us an opportunity of conversion? So that's a fascinating point, Ron. So you, by analyzing and watching the social media activity of your staff, learn more about your targets. 100%. Learn more about what gets click-throughs and engagement for them. So in as much as you're, you're managing your own space, you're really developing data analytics and making decisions from all of their social pages. 100%. And, and the thing, it's, 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 the, it's the collective process of marketing. It's, all right, I'm checking the box that I've done the ad sets right. But now, how do I get that critical mass? How do I create – because keep in mind, we all understand that you know, people get to Vegas. And you know, I think I, was, I had the app on my phone for a minute, and I was, I was doing the, the how much time I spent on Instagram. It got to the point where I had to take it off – I had to take Instagram off my phone because it got to the point where it became my nervous tick. Like I was in a meeting, you're in a conversation, you're clicking on it. Yep. But I also understand that someone's on vacation. 
they're active to understand. And collectively, Instagram becomes the means of figuring out what's going on in a community, what's going on in nightlife. And guess what? Seeing the, the very attractive staff, male and female, that I've hired and seeing them posting – and seeing what they're posting. I mean, the girl... Well, they're all brand ambassadors in the end. 100%. I will tell you right now, I, it's funny. We, we, I tell my team, get as much content as possible. And then service it out. The, the beautiful waitress walking the large format bottle to the table. Guess what? If I get a great photo of her and she posts that photo and then she captions it, come see Marshmallow tonight. Yeah. I get so much more traction off and of that. And I want that moment as a customer. Right. I want to be sitting there when Marshmallow brings me that big bottle. Well, And that's the thing, too, is... I, I always want the visuals to do thing, two things. If you miss the night, I want to create FOMO. I want you to never miss another night. Yeah. Or I want it to inspire you. I want it to be aspirationally. I want that to be you. Like I always talk about the customer, um, the growth of a customer. You know, One of my best customers was a guy who 10 years ago was going to law school and emailed me, emailed actually the, the ticketing refund link to explain it to, to about a bad experience. And you flipped it. I flipped it. Yeah, those are the best. Until this day. And now keep in mind, this guy comes in two, three times a year, dance floor customer. I don't want to say the numbers, but he's sitting on the dance floor now. Big attorney. And keep in mind, it was because back in the day, 10 years ago, I used to answer every refund request. What does that mean when you answer? It means you care about me. Oh, yeah. So it means next time I come back, you're going to care about me again. And now you know me. So you're really going to care about me. So it's a great opportunity to flip. So many people just don't do that. They, they're, they're scared to hear that complaint, right? They don't want to talk to that person. No, no. And, you know, it's sometimes they want to take – like I look at this. Sometimes they want to take a, almost a defensive stance of, oh, well, we didn't do that. Well, look, at the end of the day, whatever the, the negative perception of the customer is, how do we change it? Because we don't have a time machine. We can't go back and fix that moment. And a lot of times when you're getting the email, they've already left town. Right. So how do I make – how do I refund you for this? How do I make – your next trip is on me. How do I take care of that next experience in my venue? So now I'm even. I'm even at that point, you know? We should, right. Uh, at that He's point, a good I'm guy. Even. I can't wait to go back. We'll yeah. see if they get it right next yeah. time. But for now, it's right. But to get that, get that next chance, you've got to reach out. Yeah. You know, the past couple of years, I've been looking at what's going to happen here. And, you know, we have the Tiestos and the Calvin Harrises, and they've been playing for a long time. And then the last wind property opened, and they weren't going to put in the major DJs, mm-hmm. right? And they were going to go in a different mood, and, and, and that didn't happen. The major DJs were there within weeks. And where do you think it's going? So, you know, one of the things in, in, in going over to a new project was I wanted to establish the most unique, diverse music lineup in the world. And I said that. I said I sat in a meeting, and I said, I'm not trying to compete with clubs. I'm trying to compete with festivals. And that's a mm. very, very strong those big words. Yeah, strong statement. And But what I really wanted to do is I wanted to say, how do I go out and how do I tap into the EDM market, which is still hugely popular? Yep. How do I look at hip-hop? How do I look at pop? How do I look at deep house? How do I look at the Latin market? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do I build a lineup up that if I put this on paper, it looks like you're, you're going to Coachella in Vegas? And that was really my goal is how do I create such a diversified lineup that if John Taffer comes in on a Friday night to hear the EDM show and comes in Saturday night to hear a Bad Bunny for a, a Latin music show, that you're getting two different experiences. So, again, the, the room itself is very interactive with the production. Mm-hmm. The, the uniforms, the way, the way the flow of the room is, but I want to change everything on every night. So you can, you can be in Vegas and you can come three nights in a row and feel that you went to three different spaces. Uh, that's your genius, buddy. You're just looking at it in a very deep way. Where can people go to see Images of Chaos? Where's the best place to send them to? Um, well, one, I would go to our Instagram. So okay. I, would go, I would go to Chaos LV. Chaos LV. Um, the Instagram, I mean, Instagram has now become the hub. You yeah. know, I mean, think about it. We're, we're pretty much, uh, Instagram is your new website, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Go, everyone's going to Instagram to, to see the recap videos, to basically go on a journey through our stories. They're able to buy tickets. But it, it really is through Instagram now. You know, everything's being pushed through there. What would you say to that uh, 23-year-old kid who wants to chase his dreams but didn't have the, doesn't have the courage to leave Ohio or Michigan or New York or wherever they are? What about that kid who has the same talent you have, same talent I have, but just never had the courage to leave like you and I did? What do you say to him? I, I would say this. I, I, I always look back and I feel that I had a fork in the road, right? There was, there, was, there was a critical moment, and I remember that moment sitting in 
my apartment alone in Ohio and saying to myself, look, there's a lot of fear in going to Las Vegas, but I'm never going to know unless I do it. Yeah. And again, if I sat there and wrote out on paper what my life was going to be like if I stayed in Ohio, it was a, it was a, pretty, easy, it was a pretty easy path to write out. Still took courage, though. 100%. Do you agree with this? Somebody once said this to me. I agree with it. I wonder if you do, Ron. Five years from now, when you look back at anything in your life, do you ever really regret anything that you did five years ago? Or do you regret the things that you didn't do five years oh, ago? Oh, it's, it's the things you didn't do. I completely agree. It's 100% the things you didn't do. I don't do. regret anything looking back. Do you? No. But I regret some things that I didn't do. And I think that's the message. Ron Nicoli did do it. And you could have stayed like your friends did. Oh. And a lot of people you grew up with. You chose to make a move because you believed in yourself. And anybody I think who's listening, who's in that crossroads that Ron and I are talking about, who doesn't make that move, it isn't the move that's worrying me. It's the fact that you don't believe in yourself enough to want to make that move. Because the fact is, when you believe in yourself, everything else is possible. When you invest in yourself, everything else is possible, Ron. Right now, I'm sitting with one of the greatest nightclub executives in the whole world. Buddy, there's nobody better than you. Thank you. And how many years ago you were handing out take ones on a corner in front of Wynn Las Vegas? How many years ago? Thirteen. Thirteen years ago. It's amazing what you can accomplish with humility, intelligence, and a selflessness. Because it's not about you, Ron. It's about your customers and your employees. And that makes you a really special, buddy. You know, what I would say with that is, to your point, it made me think of this as, as soon as you were speaking about it, was I think the big thing is inner confidence. Because I, I've got to be honest, like coming out here or even day to day right now, like standing behind decisions. And again, you're going to make some good decisions, you make some bad decisions. The bad decisions we learn from. The good decisions just reinforces that you made the right decision. But I mean, I said it the other day. I said, I, I, I wake up every day and I feel like I'm living a dream. Like there's no other way to put it. Like the scariest part of my life is the, the hope that I don't wake up one morning and it was. And that really is the scariest part because truthfully, I wake up every day happy. Because you showed up. Yep. You showed up. You woke up that morning. You believed in yourself and you came here and now you're the top of your game. There's nobody better in this town than you are, Ron. You're an unbelievable marketer. You understand the faces of your customers. You can close your eyes, picture what they dress, where they go, where they eat, what they do. You are a true, true marketer. Uh, and a complete marketer. Hats off on your success, buddy. I hope this interview inspires some of you listening because Ron is not only a really good guy and a figure here in Las Vegas, it goes to show what can happen when you just make a move. Make a move. Believe in yourself. Ron made a move. He started a, 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 a health business, health and training business. He made a move. He started handing out flyers. He made a move. He walked into win, was intimidated. It meant nothing. He made a move and a move and a move and a move. And 13 years later, now he's telling other people what moves to make. And they say that with humility. It's great to have you here, buddy. Was a, this was a true honor to be on the show today, man. Thank you for this. Good to have you, buddy. I love you. John, thank you. Love you too, brother. It's fun to have an industry guy on like Ron Nicoli, but there's such a powerful lesson to learn here, whether you're in the bar hospitality business or not. Go for it. When an opportunity knocks, you got to open the door. If you don't open the door, it'll bother you forever. Opening the door and walking in always leads to something good. Even if it doesn't work out, there's experience, there's knowledge. We learn from mistakes. We learn from our endeavors. We learn nothing when we don't open that door. And that, to me, was the most powerful lesson that we can learn from my talk with Ron Nicoli. When I come back, we're with my favorite part of the show. I hope yours, too, because this is the part where I actually talk to you. So I'll be back with audience calls in a second. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Hey, it's Ross Tucker from the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Check out the Under Review Show with host Damon D here at Podcast One, presented by BetOnline.ag. Get the odds, news, and insights from real industry insiders. This isn't your typical schlocky picks show. Download new episodes of Under Review, presented by BetOnline every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Shut it down! All right, John. New week and new callers. Let's get Shut it. Shut it down! First up, we have Pat from Reno, Nevada. 
Pat, how are you, man? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, it's great to uh, be on the show again. Thank you. Good to have you back, buddy. So uh, you're up in Reno. What do you want to talk about today? Yep. Uh, I was curious to think your thoughts on uh, Las Vegas, since you're a, a local down there and, and do a lot of business and have a lot of um, influence down there, on the new passing of marijuana lounges. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm for it, of course. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. When you look at the whole cannabis thing, Pat, it's almost like prohibition. When prohibition, you know, ended and alcohol became legal in America, everybody freaked out. They thought there'd be drunks laying on corners and people puking all over the place and driving into walls and blah, 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 blah. So they were very, very protective over it. And, and it was released in a very managed way with a lot of panic around people. And I think that cannabis is a little like that in a sense, Pat. You know, when it first became legal, people freaked out. They're going to be driving in the walls. They're going to be doing this. They're going to be doing that. <laughs> people didn't understand it. You know what I mean? And, and, and all of this fear is starting to subside now. And I bet you sense that up, up uh, in Reno as well. And it's now starting, particularly in Colorado, where, where, you know, one of the earlier states, where it's now just, you know, a matter of course. You smell it when you walk down the sidewalk when you're downtown. And, you know, it's just, it's not anything that's freaking people out anymore. So the, the, the evolution of a cannabis smoking lounge is an obvious evolution that's going to happen. What's interesting is when will alcohol and cannabis be allowed to be put in the same place? Now, people are producing cannabis beer. They call it cannabeer. But it's not beer because it doesn't have any alcohol in it, Pat. It's just a brew made with cannabis leaves in it. So nobody has been able to mix cannabis and alcohol together in a legal sense. And uh, uh, the Department of Alcohol, Fire, and Tobacco is not going to allow that for a very, very long time. So these smoking lounges will probably not have alcohol in them. Uh, uh, you might not even be a BYOB program where you can't even bring your own. And I'm concerned that if they're not done properly, they'll look like an opium den. You know those sleazy opium yeah. dens that you see in old movies when they're you know, out in Asia? You know, it needs to be done right. It needs to be done in a classy way. If it's done in an elegant way like cigar bars were years ago, I think it can be successful and I'm all for it. What do you think? I think that's a great point. I, not only do I think that's a great point, it's something that I've been passionate about for a very long time. I broke my back when I was 12, so, and I'm 43. And I was one of the – I got my medical license in – 90, the end of, uh, right at the beginning of 99. So I was really part of this when really there was, it was really only California that had medical marijuana back then. And it's something that I'm very happy to see that it's growing the way it is. And it's something that I can really foresee, especially with the nice new show, which I love, you know, seeing, seeing great things for, is the, someone, someone needs to do their homework enough to fly over to where you see very, coffee shop type of, you know, lounges mm -hmm. that allow cannabis smoking. And, and that's something where it, I could see it going really a, a, not only a good thing, but it's also one of the things that I find where it's going to be successful is in a downtown atmosphere. I because think so too. my, my, my fear is, but there needs to be sports there. Then you, you go there to enjoy cannabis while you're in a social environment. You just can't go there to smoke cannabis. There needs to be more Correct. to it than that. And I'm with you, Pat. Exactly. If, if it's a great social experience and it's fun, my guess is it, it'll be very successful. I do think there is one product that they're going to have to have, though. Potato chips. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, we can go into business together and we'll put vending machines in. That's it, boy. Salted snacks and we're good to go. Good to talk to you, Pat. Thank Take you. care, buddy. Thank you, man. You have a great one. You too. All right, John, this is Christopher. Christopher, how are you, buddy? Pretty good. How about yourself? Good, thanks. You're an author, huh? Yeah. I, uh, I Basically, well, that's maybe a loose term for it. I, uh, it's, it's something I've done all my life. Um, Actually, on a plane out to Vegas one time, I started writing a book on my phone and <laughs> wrote the entire thing. Um, wow. Where we're different is I'm more of a fiction writer, whereas you've written you know, self-help books. But I was curious what your writing uh, style was as far as like the process that you go through in writing and um, any advice you might have in trying to you know, get my work out there. I've never even really overly tried. I've kind of looked into it a little bit, but 
Well, you know, there are some um, pub- there are websites now you can publish your own works, and you go. Yeah, on, I, I, I you, sort of looked into that, but I, I, I would love your take on that. Um, you know, I, I just I'm kind of like stuck. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what. The to do problem with that. with that is you get a bunch of books, but where the hell do you sell them? You know, what store do you put right. them in and all that? I've been fortunate. I've, I've written two books. One was a New York Times bestseller. And, you know, when, when, when I look at the books, and I'm writing a fiction book right now. And, you know, sto- oh, you are. Yeah, and storytelling, Christopher, is, is much tougher fiction than nonfiction in my view. In a nonfiction, I'm going back to things that are sort of factual in my mind. You know what I mean? Things that I lived, right. things that I experienced myself. And it, it becomes... Almost a, a, a recollection of facts and practices uh, from my own life that I've seen from myself and people around me. I think those are a lot right. easier to write than the kind of book that you're writing with fiction. And, you know, sometimes yeah. when I look at Bar Rescue, and Bar Rescue is not written, none of it is scripted, there's no actors, none of that. But I often tell people when I think about the success of Bar Rescue, and I was just told today, Bar Rescue, won a, you're the first person I'm ever telling this to. Christopher, Bar Rescue won a Critics' Choice Award just today. And I haven't told oh, wow. that to anyone yet. Congratulations. I, I just learned myself about an hour ago. But when we look at Bar Rescue, think about it. It's Shakespearean. Person in trouble, resists change, starts to transform, yeah. redeems themselves, happy ending. That's a right. Shakespearean, it's classic storytelling. And I think that's why Bar Rescue is so successful, is because those elements are present in every single episode. It's always somebody in trouble. They almost always resist change. They go through some type of a transformation, or I, or I walk out on them, and then they typically redeem themselves at the end. So when you think right. about it, it's classic storytelling. So great right. writers who write fiction you know, attach themselves to those great arches and peaks and valleys and wonderful storytelling, and then build you know, the elements of the story around it. So what have you done to promote your books? Have you sent them to people? Have you sent them to any literary agents? Well, I, I went to a conference uh, in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, um, and I met with some literary agents. They really liked um, the concept that I had for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I had written uh, one. It was like a three-part series. I had written one at the time, and I've been in the middle of the second one ever since. Um, <laughs> I, I just... I've kind of got a little block going. Um, but one of some great advice I had was from one of the agents was, you know, to basically once you're done with it, go back over it again and rewrite it again. And he just said this and keep going over it and over and over it. Well, it's funny. I've been, I've been, um, I've been, although it sounded like a lot of work, it sounded like good advice to, to make sure that it was totally ready once I started. To, I think there's, I'm a little hesitant because I want to make sure it's totally ready before I put it out there because, then people could say, oh, you know, if it's not up to their standards, they just shoot me down right away, you know? Well, for my entire life, before I wrote any books, I've been writing market studies and concept statements and business plans for 30 years. And I've been writing right. them for some of the uh, uh, biggest corporations in the world. I get charged a lot of money for these things. So you can't just mm-hmm. write it and hand it over. So I'll read it. Right change a sentence, read it, take this paragraph that was the third paragraph, make it the second paragraph, move the second paragraph to the third. I'll somehow take, wow, this chapter would be better here than there. This part of this chapter would be better here than there. I find that the rewrites are really important. I find yeah. that you work in it when you write it. You work on it when you read it. Right. And you need, and so, yeah, and you need so, both. So, so you know what, what I mean? What is your process? Like when you, when you sit down to write this fiction book you're writing, do you, do you like get, do you block off a certain amount of time during the day, or is it just as, as the ideas come to you? I got to sit down and do this now. More that when ideas come to me, I put them down. But what I've done is I wrote the book, the entire book and the entire concept in about five pages. So I have my chapters laid out. I have bullets of stories. So now every time I pull it out, I take one of those bullets and expand it. So when he did gotcha. this, he's going to commit a crime. So what are the specifics of that? So, so what I've done is I've, I've, in essence, threaded a story, if you will, in an abstract sense. And now I'm going to take okay. that story and keep adding meat, adding meat, adding meat, and going back to it again and again and again. And then I digest it and think about it. Sometimes I actually dream about it that night. I'm so engrossed in what I'm doing. You know, I'm so immersed in it. But I right. live it. And uh, I think rewriting is every bit as important as the first time you write really is. Yes. So when you feel good about it, send me one, will you? 
When you're ready to send it out, I send absolutely me one. Will. I've got a lot of friends in, in the space. I'd love to read it, Christopher, and pass it on for you. I will absolutely love to do that. And I got one more quick question for you. Go ahead. Where were you watching the Golden Knights when that debacle went down? Well, first of all, that was it was it was more than a debacle. It was an incredible screw up by the NHL. They changed the yeah. rules of a five minute penalty. Now those calls aren't made on the ice anymore. Now they go to Toronto, which should have been. I forget the player's name, the Sharks player, who the penalty was made upon, the Eakins penalty. Even he said it shouldn't have been a five-minute penalty. He said that a couple of days ago. So I am absolutely freaking furious over it. I can't stop being furious over it. The Sharks are probably going to beat the Avalanche. We would have definitely beat the Avalanche. We'd be going into the third freaking round of the playoffs right now. Don't you agree? Totally agree, 100%. And it was robbed from us. And the fact that Toronto didn't get involved in that call in real time is a little outrageous. And I think that they, they destroyed the hockey playoffs this year. We have a historic team. It's historic anyway. It's the first time a new franchise ever made it to the playoffs two years in a row. But we would have made it to round three for sure, Christopher. So I'm furious about it. I can't watch the hockey playoffs over it. Every time I turn on one of the games, I get so aggravated over it, i got to turn it off. So this is probably the first year in a long time I will not watch the Stanley Cup because it's just too freaking aggravating. Sorry, buddy. You got me going on this, but I'm just furious. No problem. No problem. So I look forward to sending you a copy of my manuscript. I'll definitely do that. I'll get in touch with your producer when I'm ready to do it. Great. You're hot. You're, are you a Golden Knights fan, Christopher? Yeah, well, I'm from Detroit originally, um, but I found myself going out to Vegas a lot. Um, I have a writing partner in Vegas, so I travel out there to Vegas a lot. I've been to 10 Golden Knights games. I've been to, I was at our last victory over the Sharks yeah. with my wife. I took her out, and she couldn't believe the atmosphere of the game. Yeah, it's a great place and to see so, a game. Hey, well, it, it's the best. And, you know, I, I was there when the Wings won the Cup in 2002, and the atmosphere in Vegas is even better than that. And yeah. it's, that's hard to say. It's hard to believe. It's Well, they said it's officially so. it's the best arena to watch an NHL game. I'll tell you a little inside secret, Chris. Tomorrow night, I gave myself to the uh, Golden Knights Charity Foundation to do an auction, uh, dinner. Oh, awesome. And uh, somebody bought it. I think they paid about twenty five grand for it. And tomorrow night I'm going to dinner with the person who bought the auction. Uh, um, Schmidt and uh, Ryan oh, Reeves. Yeah. So uh, I'm going out oh, with Nate cool. Schmidt and Ryan Reeves for dinner tomorrow night. And I must tell you, buddy, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thanks uh, for talking to me. And I definitely will get you a copy of that manuscript. Take care. Good luck, Chris. Thanks so much. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like. But the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Corey will open those emails. He'll set it up with you. And then you and I will talk on a podcast and we'll have some fun. And by the way, while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast.com or the Podcast One app and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, that does it for this week. Next week, I am really excited. I have Bobby Reynolds and Chris Hammond on. Bobby and Chris are both senior executives at AEG, which is the largest live concert and events company in the world. And I'm really curious to talk about what's going on in the spring, the summer, and concerts and events and festivals around the country, and what's going on with the industry as a whole. But before I go, I want to wish every mother a wonderful Mother's Day. I hope all of you have received the love and joy that I received from my mom. And I hope that you're able to give it back like I did. Happy Mother's Day, everybody.